0: The son of a king, he was raised not as a prince but as a commoner. Perhaps, though, he was destined for greatness, because a wise counsellor took him under his wing, educated him, served as a trusted adviser, and helped him become king and rule with justice and fairness. Chandragupta Maurya's story has parallels with the legend of King Arthur: He was born the prince of a subjugated kingdom, his father was killed, and his lands were confiscated but he rose up to unite his people, expel foreign invaders, and overthrow a corrupt regime. This is the Almost Forgotten. Hello everyone and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives and times of great historical figures that have mostly fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Episode 1.2 Chandragupta Mariya Chandragupta was born in the middle of the 4th century BC, probably between 345 and 340, in a large and ostensibly new kingdom in India, the Nanda Empire. The Nanda Empire was big. It stretched across northern India from the mouth of the Ganges, modern Bangladesh, west across the northern India plain up to the Himalayan foothills before losing influence east of the Indus River Valley but probably making it to the western shores of India. Prior to Chandragupta's birth and the rise of the Nandas, India was divided into 16 kingdoms known as the Mahajanapada. These weren't originally large in terms of land area, but describing them as tribes, which they're often called, probably oversimplifies these entities. Some of them were even republics in the sense that several leading families or tribes within the country ruled that particular kingdom. By the 4th century BC, these kingdoms had been whittled down to as few as four, with the weaker ones submitting to the stronger. One of the stronger kingdoms was Magadha, which had probably been around in some form or another for about a thousand years. About 200 years earlier, one of their kings named Bimbisara expanded the empire, conquering at least one of the other Mahajanapada. But he is more well known for being a protector and patron of the Buddha. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a pretty big deal. Magadha grew through different kings and dynasties until eventually... Mahapadma Nanda assassinated their king and took over. Magadha was already becoming big, but the Nandas took it to another level, conquering many of the vassal kingdoms of the Mahajanapada and their vassals. Mahapadma Nanda was creating a more unified northern India, but, unfortunately for him, part of that unity took the form of resentment of his harsh rules. He was considered greedy and almost predatory towards his people, Now, at a time when most people are forced to spend their lives enriching the ruling class, that's got to be an impressive level of avarice. Considering that we even know this, it might have been an indication that he was taking money from some of the entrenched power base and oligarchs, as opposed to just the worthless peasants. Outside of India, the most important part of the world for this story was just to the West. When Chandragupta was born, the world's superpower was the Persian Achaemenid Empire, which stretched from the Indus River Valley west through Egypt and Anatolia. While their power base was distant from India, the Persians weren't on the other side of some natural boundary. They were living on the Indian subcontinent. Cyrus the Great had captured the lands west of the Indus River. Darius sent a naval expedition to explore the river, although after Xerxes was defeated by Greece, it seems the Achaemenids waned in power in the region. Beyond Anatolia, Athens and Sparta were already punching each other silly, and their best days were behind them. But there was this hillbilly kingdom based in northern Greece, which was finishing up conquering the disparate rival Greek city-states. Within a decade, the new leader of this Macedonian empire, Alexander the Great, will have shattered the Persian military and leadership and conquered all of it, eventually reaching as far as western India. Further west, the Roman Republic was becoming more Republican, as patricians were giving concessions to the Plebeians. Marcus Furius Camillus, the second founder of Rome, had died in 365, and the Samnite Wars were just starting, which would lead to a Roman unification of Italy. Beyond that was a Phoenician colony the inhabitants called Cart Hadash. Better known today as Carthage, it became the center of power for the Phoenician people after the Achamenids took over the Levant. It became the center of trade in the western Mediterranean with an empire that dominated the maritime region. North of that, the Gauls and the Celts ruled continental Europe, while the Germanic tribes were still mostly in southern Scandinavia, including Jutland. In Africa, the kingdom of Kush, centered around Meroe just south of Egypt, was still around after over 700 years of relevance, which included a stint as the 25th dynasty of Egypt and trade as far as India. On the western hemisphere... The Maya were on the verge of entering what is considered their classical period, and sites like El Mirador and Tikal were already flourishing. In South America, the Chavan culture was the most dominant of the several groups that were present on the Pacific side of the Andes. Continuing west, across the Pacific, China was in the middle of what would be called the Warring States Period as the Zhu Dynasty had effectively lost control. Seven major states fought over territory and influence, Shang Yang of the Qin Kingdom had just written a book that defined his philosophy, known as Legalism, which was, in some ways, a rebuttal to the 150-year-old philosophy of Confucianism. And, back around to India, Chandragupta Maurya was born, likely into a princely warrior caste. One of the more legendary sources says that, in the time of Buddha, a clan of warriors had retreated and fled after a defeat, and they looked for a new place to settle. The area they settled was rife with peacocks, or Maurya in Sanskrit, and that's why the family took the name. However they got their name, generations later this clan's territory was conquered by the Nandas. The king was put to death, but his pregnant wife was able to flee to Patalaputra and crash with some friends that would keep them safe. She gave birth to Chandragupta, and there they lived in disguise with some peacock tamers. This part of the story is probably not as apocryphal as it first seems. Considering they were named after the birds only a century before, due to its presence in the city, it's likely they were quite familiar with them, and peacocks were a major part of India's export economy. They were revered by Indians, Persians, and Greeks alike, and were almost certainly a Moria family symbol and treated with reverence in their old home. Former prince current peacock wrangler Chandragupta had lost his rank and status, but his disguise served him well. Some stories suggest he spent time in the Nanda court as he grew up, which, if true, uh, probably could be an indication that he wasn't necessarily as incognito as the story suggests. Whatever the truth was, he probably wasn't completely ignorant of the ruling family, because Pataliputra, his new home, was actually the capital of the Nanda empire. Sources say he observed the Nandas and was so dissatisfied with their rule that he decided to end it. More likely, he knew of his heritage and just wanted to regain status and power that he felt was rightly his. Chandragupta was in his late teens in 326 BC when Alexander the Great reached the Indus River Valley with his army. The presence of the invading Greeks no doubt raised some eyebrows in the Nanda Empire. The government may have been on shaky ground from the aforementioned taking everyone's money, And the Nanda also, in preview of Frankish tactics, had in some ways distributed power among all of the eight relatives, either brothers or sons, and this caused division. Another indication of the Nanda empire's relative weakness was their apparent complete lack of response to the fall of Persia. As Alexander entered the northern Indus valley, the local Indian rulers did not appear to have much Nanda influence. They were still mostly Persian client kings. Alexander took over the northern Indus valley city of Taxila after its king, Taxilis, nice name, submitted to him. This gave the Macedonians a base of operations on the Indian side of the Hindu Kush mountains. He then took control of the state of Porovas after what is called the Battle of Jellum River or the Battle of the Hydaspes against King Porus. This battle is often considered both more proof of alexander's tactical genius with the way he won the battle as well as his most costly victory it wasn't just a massive battle there was a difficult river crossing and Taxilus was there and seleucus and ptolemy and that's a story for another time at this point the plucky young macedonian supply lines were stretched thin over the mountains to the west and his men were exhausted alexander allowed porus to remain in place as his local vassal Within a year from this battle, his advance had ground to a halt, and he realized he was so overextended he couldn't effectively rule the Indus Valley just yet. Or maybe his soldiers realized it, and he had no choice, but the effect was the same. Besides, next up would not have been another small kingdom, but the Nanda Empire itself. Despite its internal division, it was still, like the Persians, a large empire with a large army to call upon. And perhaps that, more than anything, was why Alexander decided it was time to return to the safety of Babylon. Okay, maybe it was the threat of mutiny, but... While this was going on, Chandragupta wasn't sitting still. He formed one of the world's great partnerships. He linked up with a former Nanda minister, Chanakya, who maybe was pissed after being insulted by the Nanda leadership, but at the very least had become convinced that the Nanda shouldn't be in charge anymore. At that point, Alexander was still in India and had essentially secured his borders up to the western bank of the Indus River with some presence on the eastern side. So, hello, neighbor. Chanakya is a legend in his own right, a learned man from the priestly Brahmin caste who worked as a professor and saw in Chandragupta a leader that he could assist with overthrowing the Nanda Empire. He's considered the author of the a book that describes the best way a ruler should operate and is often compared to Machiavelli's prince. Although it is at times quite stark in its real politic, it's bigger in scope than the prince, focusing on economics as well. It's also more concerned with the welfare of the people, something that Machiavelli didn't seem to think was very important. Together, Chandragupta and Chanakya planned the overthrow of the Nanda Empire and began to raise an army. They were able to bring about some sort of conflict, and although it's unclear if it was a pitched battle or something less grandiose, they were defeated by the still-massive, if waning, Nandas. At that point, Chandragupta made his way to the Punjab region, the northern Indus Valley, and Plutarch actually says that he met Alexander. Why was Chandragupta there? Well, Taxila was considered the best place for an education in India. The Buddhist legends say that Chanakya noticed him playing with other boys and saw a king among common folk. He wanted the young man to be his protege and get his education at the best university in India. But this tale seems a bit too much like a fairy tale. One intriguing possibility. Sources suggest that Chanakya worked at the renowned university in Taxila as a speaker or a lecturer. And there's evidence that Chandragupta was studying there. Perhaps Chandragupta had fled outside of the Nanda's territory and made his way to the university to educate himself for what he saw as his destiny. There he may have met Chanakya, who saw in him a man with the bloodlines, the capability, and the desire to overthrow the hated Nanda. After an initial, unsuccessful attempt, they fled back to Taxila, their base of operations. The two may well have met with Alexander to try to somehow gain his help. It's not obvious that anything was accomplished in this encounter. It was probably after the Battle of the Hydaspes, so Alexander may have been making his way out of the region. What we know is that Chandragupta didn't get an army of Macedonian phalanxes to help him overthrow the Nandas. Instead, he continued his exile in the Punjab region, essentially now part of Alexander's empire. In a story that might bring to mind Alfred the Great burning cakes on the fire, Chandragupta then encountered a woman who didn't recognize him. She chastised her son for going for the middle of a cake before eating the edges, just like Chandragupta, who went after the middle of an empire without first conquering the frontier. Probably not the most reliable story from this whole thing, it's still a nice view of what may have been going through his mind. It's worth remembering that the Nanda Empire was really a dynasty of the Magadha Kingdom and Chandragupta had tried and failed to defeat the Nandas by taking on the heart of the Magadha kingdom, which was now the Nanda power base. Now, Chandragupta and Chanakya had decided to take it down from the outside. Normally it sounds way smarter to say you're going to take something down from the inside, but they already tried that, so just stay with me here. In 323 BC, Alexander died, and in 321 his empire was partitioned. The partition actually kept the empire intact and gave it to Alexander's son and his half-brother with a regent in charge, while the satrapies, the Persian term for the empire's provinces, were handed out to various leaders. Many of these leaders became the dyadaki, Alexander's successors who ended up founding the empires that followed his. There's quite a bit of confusion from the sources as to who was left in charge of what is today's Pakistan, but we'll try. Axiartes, a local king whose daughter married Alexander, was given charge of the mountainous region surrounding the Khyber Pass and Peshawar. A Greek python, son of Aganor, was named the satrap near the mouth of the Indus River, down by the Arabian Sea. King Porus and Taxilus were probably both able to keep their lands as loyal local rulers. Also in Punjab, the northern Indus Valley region, Eudemos, another Greek general, was vying for power at the expense of the local rulers, and he might have been appointed to sort of keep a watchful eye on Porus, if not Taxilis as well. So, you have a group of locally ruled, semi-autonomous territories with leaders jostling for power. Meanwhile, the leadership of the empire that they were subject to was thousands of miles away and involved in a massive civil war. This was pretty much a perfect target for Chandragupta, and he took advantage. In fact, the assassinations of two Greek governors, Nicanor and Philip, might have been orchestrated by Chandragupta and Chanakya. Chandragupta was helped when Eudemos, that Greek general, killed King Porus but then didn't stick around to rule the area. He was later involved in some of the wars of the dyadaki, so maybe he left the territory to a region, as opposed to just abandoning it. This may have been the impetus for Chandragupta's next moves, or it may have just been coincidental timing. Chandragupta and Chanakya recruited the nucleus of the army from this Punjab region, so it's likely they were already with him when he took on the Greeks. The people he found have been described as everything from heroic warrior clans to common criminals and robbers. It's quite possible that these were just independent warring tribes who made their living through raiding and warfare, like the Vikings or a more sedentary version of steppe nomads. This explanation makes some sense because the Greek sources talk about how much more difficult the battles in India were for Alexander. They praise the strength and power of these armies even in their defeat, more so than the various Persian enemies, although they had plenty of incentive to describe it this way since it's where their conquest stopped. Chandragupta also secured the alliance of a Himalayan chief named Parvataka to bolster his forces. Together with Parvataka and his Punjab warriors, they started not by attacking Nanda, but instead by going after the now Alexanderless Greeks in the northern Indus valley. It was probably quite a bit easier to gather troops to go kick the foreign invaders out instead of toppling the current Indian rulers, corrupt as they were. The timing isn't exactly known, and this revolution probably started before the 321 partition of the now-deceased Alexander's Empire because there was no territory east of the Indus River to give out. That suggests it was already out of Greek hands and was probably already under Chandragupta's control. There isn't a record of any battles here, and that may be because there weren't many Greeks left in the area. It could have been a relatively bloodless takeover, barring some key Greek leaders' assassinations. By around 320 BC, he had taken most of today's Pakistan, and after defeating the Greeks, he was able to turn back east and look to his main target. Thinking about the geography of the region for a moment, Even though the Indus River flows out on the west side of the massive diamond, that is India, into the Arabian Sea, and the Ganges flows out in the east to the Bay of Bengal through what is now Bangladesh, their headwaters are actually very close. The northern part of the subcontinent is sometimes called the Indo-Gangetic Plain. The Ganges River Valley was the center of the Nanda power base, and Chandragupta started in the western end of that, not far from Punjab, and began making his way east, down the river. Initially, he was able to take provinces that were probably not part of the Nanda Empire. They didn't all submit easily, and it may have taken some time to add the upper Ganges to his territory before finally moving on to the Nanda. He conquered the outlying regions, but as he advanced on Pataliputra, he found himself surrounded by regrouped enemies that he had left behind. He was able to deal with them again, and this time he began to leave garrisons behind to prevent this from happening. The nine Nandas, as they would be known, attempted to rule a united kingdom, but since each was given some authority over territory, it's likely that there was infighting. By the time Chandragupta and his forces became a real threat, there were only eight Nandas, with the dynasty's founder and most formidable and most unifying presence having died a few years earlier. The enemy was divided and distracted, but not weak. Modern estimates put the Nanda army at 200,000 infantry, 20,000 cavalry, 2,000 chariots, and 3,000 elephants. It was also a huge empire stretching from the borders of Punjab across to the mouth of the Ganges. Chandragupta had his Punjab army that had put up such a fight against Alexander, and he may have used Greek mercenaries. Xenophon's Anabasis is a reminder that Greek armies could be hired out, even in enemy territory. There isn't any evidence of a major pitched battle. Early on, even with his Punjab tribal armies, Chandragupta probably resorted to something like a guerrilla campaign. At some point, he may have convinced the regional leaders, who were probably quite resentful of the greedy Nandas, to join his side. Considering how Chandragupta operated in Punjab, there may have been some well timed mysterious deaths among the Nandas, although there certainly were actual battles at some point. Unfortunately, the historical evidence from the revolt itself is pretty lacking. However it happened, it was relatively quick, and within a few years the Magadha kingdom had a new ruler, Chandragupta. Again, we aren't sure the timing, although he probably wasn't king of all of India as early as 322 BC because of the Macedonian inclusion of that territory west of the Indus River in their 321 partition, and probably wasn't quite as late as 316 BC as some sources say. Either way, now he was not only the new king of Magadha thanks to his conquests in the Indus Valley and down the Deccan Plain, he was king of much more. It was no longer the kingdom of Magadha or the Nanda Empire, it was the Mauryan Empire. India now had the largest single state it would have for centuries, and Chandragupta was its new emperor, naming Chanakya his prime minister. His coronation took place in Pataliputra, the old Magadha capital. According to Megasthenes, an ambassador from the Seleucid Empire, which we'll get to later, the city was enormous. A fortified palisade ran 21 miles in total with 570 towers and 64 gates. Hermann Kulke, who wrote a book called The History of India, stated, quote, This city was about twice as large as Rome under Emperor Marcus Aurelius. If the report is true, Patalaputra must have been the largest city of the ancient world, unquote. He then discusses why this could actually be true, as Megasthenes' numbers agrees with numbers cited in Chanakya's book. Chandragupta had taken control of a well-organized state, which was divided by caste and full of professionals and had a massive standing army. Building upon this proto-empire, Chandragupta expanded the territory further, taking over the Sarastra region. This is the horn sticking out into the Arabian Sea in western India. It solidified maritime access in the west and firmly locked the empire into the burgeoning maritime trade routes that hugged the coast. But his old buddies, the Greeks, eventually returned to do what they probably saw as reclaiming their rightful peace of the Persian Empire, an empire they had conquered fair and square. In 305 BC, one of the diatici, Seleucus Nicator, who by then had ruled a large chunk of Alexander's empire east of Syria, crossed over the Hindu Kush mountains into the Indus Valley. It had taken him 15 or so years to solidify his own power base. Now more secure, he probably couldn't expand west anymore. So, why not east? It was, after all, something he had been a part of conquering before. Shouldn't be too hard. Seleucus didn't get far past the Indus River. He might not have even crossed it which is a suggestion that Chandragupta may have already been there with a massive force. Why was he there? Maybe it took Seleucus a long time to cross the mountains, and Chandragupta was able to get word. Or, maybe the Mauryan Empire was thinking of expanding his own lands westward. We don't have any source material on the conflict between the two rulers, only the results. It did not go great for Seleucus, but whatever battles occurred might not have finished with a total rout. Seleucus survived, but he signed a treaty essentially ceding his eastern satrapies to Chandragupta. This wasn't just the Punjab region that they were fighting over. It also included all of southwest Pakistan and much of modern Afghanistan, including Kandahar and even as far west as Herat. In 305 BC, it was probably way more enticing to be given Afghanistan than it is today. Seleucus also gave his daughter to Chandragupta for marriage. All of this is confirmed by multiple European sources as well as what was given in return. Seleucus received 500 elephants, which actually helped him in a battle elsewhere. Megasthenes, the author mentioned earlier, helped negotiate the treaty and became ambassador to India. His writing was one of the main sources for our current knowledge of Chandragupta, where his name is Hellenized to Sandrakotas. Up next on the docket, he looks south past the Vindaya mountain range, a traditional southern boundary. He brought his vast army into the Deccan Plateau and conquered most of southern India, although he didn't take the Tamil regions down at the tip of the peninsula. At this point, Chandragupta was the sole ruler of the entire Indo-Gangetic plain, as well as significant territory to the west and to the south. He had also secured his western borders, and would not have to face invasion from the Greeks again in his lifetime. It doesn't appear that he had much in the way of warfare at all after this point, despite ruling for another decade or so. Rather than focusing on further conquest, he focused on reforming the administration of the empire. Then Nanda had given him a solid foundation. They had standing armies, tax collection. It was an advanced society. But with a reputation for extorting the people, there's little doubt it had need for reform. His empire still had, like the Persians some amount of protectorates underneath him, especially in the areas further afield. Certain oligarchic families that had ruled before the conquest remained, and even sub-kingdoms were ruled by their own rajas. He had a loyal officer class that helped him rule, as well as an assembly of counselors and chief ministers. Trade flourished internally and externally during his rule. He sought to maintain roads to ease the flow of goods. He connected Patalaputra with Taxila, through a Royal Road, which is still there today as part of the Grand Trunk Road, a major thoroughfare that now runs from Chittagong, Bangladesh, through to Kabul, Afghanistan. I'm sure you've driven it. Externally there was trade with Babylon and China, and India was known as a source of gold, ivory, and peacocks. Maritime trade to Persia was certainly common, so it's possible there was shipborne trade in the other direction, or towards Southeast Asia and China. After a few decades of rule, Chandragupta embraced Jainism, a religion at least a few hundred years old by his lifetime, and possibly, like his previous religion of Hinduism, more than a thousand years old. Jains embrace ahisma, a belief in not injuring any human being as well as not lying or stealing and anti-materialism. It was growing in popularity during his lifetime and spreading throughout India. At some point, there was a big famine and he abdicated his throne to his son, Bindusara. He retreated to an area called Misor and lived as an aesthetic before starving himself to death. This death was not a result of him being a religious fanatic. Rather, it's another tenet of Jainism that he embraced. Essentially, when a person is dying and is near the very end, they adopt Selakana, a practice of facing death. It's not considered suicide, but more like a purge of the body. Chandragupta died in the 290s BC, but even before he did, he had passed his now stable empire encompassing most of India to his son Bindusara. Bindusara expanded the empire further south, through central India, almost to the southern tip of the subcontinent, although not quite that far. He was also unable to subdue the state of Kalinga, which was located in the east, southwest of the mouth of the Ganges and Kolkata. Bindusara's son, however, fought Kalinga and defeated them in a notably bloody war that was so devastating it convinced him to embrace Buddhism and stop wars of conquest. His name was Ashoka and he became a legendary king, a major reason that Buddhism spread, and is considered one of history's great enlightened rulers. The empire that Chandragupta founded lasted around a century and a half before a general assassinated the emperor and declared himself ruler. The Mauryans had already experienced a decline after Ashoka, and this new kingdom's territory was reduced to a smaller empire as other subjects had gained independence. India wouldn't see anything approaching the size of the Mauryan Empire until at least the 300s AD under the Gupta Empire, although even this wasn't quite as big. The Mughal Empire around 1700 was close, and while the British ruled over a territory bigger, thanks to the 1947 partition, modern India is smaller. We don't know many of the details of some of the biggest events of Chandragupta's life, but we do know he founded the largest empire in Indian history and ushered in a golden age. Purushattam Lai Bhargava said in his biography of the man, quote, Thus, from a homeless wanderer twelve years before, Chandragupta became the emperor of India and a large part of the former Persian Empire. The war with Seleucus was, in all probability, the last war of Chandragupta, and he devoted the remaining years of his reign in consolidating his empire and establishing a highly efficient system of administration." Unquote. No swords from stones or strange women lying in ponds distributing swords, but This abandoned prince and his wise advisor overthrew a corrupt ruling family, expelled foreign conquerors and kept them out, greatly expanded his kingdom, and established a dynasty that lasted for generations. Pretty good work for a guy who started out as a peacock wrangler. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Tune in next time when we move west and learn about a man who struck fear in the heart of the Senate as he led an empire against a Roman Republic but had nothing to do with elephants crossing the Alps. If you go to the website, you'll notice I added some pictures and maps that should be helpful to understanding what I'm talking about. I also added sources to the bottom of each posting, in case you want to know where I got all this info or just want to read more details about the person. I also added a section to the website called Names Mentioned. This is because I know when I listen to history podcasts, I often find myself looking someone up who's mentioned. But usually I have trouble spelling a name and can't find them, especially if they're French revolutionaries. So I made a list and if you click on the names it will take you to their Wikipedia entry because that's probably where you were going anyway. The website is almostforgotten.squarespace.com And one more thing, as you can imagine these do take a while to write and while some of that is done, they are also taking a while to record. So I plan on pacing these out about once every two weeks for the foreseeable future which should give me enough time to not have to then deviate from the schedule and miss a release. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, please send them to almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com. That's one word, almostforgottenpodcast. Or find me on Twitter, at The Almost Forgot. Thanks again for listening. Mahajanapadas, the Mahajanapadas, Janapada, Mahajanapada, the Mahajanapadas.